Today we will continue our discussion of the age-old problem of theodicy, or what we call in Hebrew tzaddik viralo, why the righteous suffer, conversely also, why the wicked prosper. Last week we mentioned three approaches in explaining the seeming lack of justice in the world. One, attributed to the friends of Eov, but prohibited by the halacha and mostly foreign to Jewish philosophy, is that in fact the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer And if anyone suffers, that serves as proof that he is in fact wicked, as the friends of Eov accused Eov. We see that that is not correct from the conclusion of the book of Eov, when Hashem rebukes Eov's friends for misunderstanding his ways. The second very mainstream approach, taken particularly by the Ramban and the Meiri and the Rambam, in the name of mainstream Jewish philosophy, is that all reward is, rather, all prosperity and good that befalls a person is a reward for mitzvot. All evils and suffering are punishment for avirot. And the reason we see apparent injustice in the world is that we only see the olamazeh, the this-world side of divine justice. We don't see Olam Haba. And when a righteous person suffers, that is because he is, say, 90% righteous, so he receives 90%, a tremendous great reward in the next world. And that small 10% punishment for his sins, Hashem meets out to him in this world so that he can enjoy untarnished bliss in the next. And likewise, the wicked who prosper do so because of their few good deeds, which Hashem is obligated to reward, And Hashem chooses to reward them for their few good deeds in this world so He can punish them in the next. A third approach was based on the Gemara that we saw in Masechet Brachot, Davhei, Yisurin Shel Ahava, that sometimes suffering is inflicted by Hashem upon the righteous for their own good, not as a punishment for sins, but because suffering can sometimes be good, although it appears to be bad. The Ramban and the Rambam, in the name of mainstream Jewish philosophy, denied this approach, but many Rishonim understood this Gemara, took this Gemara at face value, and explained that what seems to be bad to us can actually be good for the Tzaddik in the long run, Rashi tells us that a tzaddik suffering is in order that he pass the test and amass more reward in the next world. Rav Sadigon tells us that a tzaddik suffers in order to show the world an example of what a tzaddik is and thereby reward the tzaddik for that educational attainment in the next world. The Pnei Yoshua tells us that a tzaddik suffers in order to atone on behalf of the generation and then earns the merit of saving his generation. The Ran and the Maharal and many other Mepharshim explained in some sense 
that physical sufferings, especially those which do, do not detract one from spiritual pursuits, may actually be good for the tzaddik, because a real tzaddik might gain from physical suffering because it removes him from the physical world and deriving no pleasure from the physical world he becomes removed from physicality and more purely spiritual and therefore better suited to enjoy the highest levels of bliss in the world to come. Today we will explore those mikorot, those sources, which imply a more radical approach to explaining the problem of Tzadik Viralo and Russia Vitovlo, which is that perhaps not everything that happens to someone is a direct divine response to his action. Perhaps sometimes a Tzadik suffers just because that's the way the world works. Is that a viable option within Jewish philosophy? It seems to be an explicit Gemara. In Moikotan Daf Chavket Amad Aleph, Rava makes a surprising statement, Chaye B'ni Yemizoni lo b'zchuta talyamilta el b'mazla talyamilta. One's lifespan, family, and economic success, which, as the Ritva points out, includes basically all that befalls someone in this world. What is the suffering or the prosperity? How long and healthy one lives? How much nachas one derives from one's children and family? And whether one is poor or rich. All of these factors are not dependent on merit, but rather merely on fate, on mazel. And Rava's proof for this surprising statement is that two mentors with whom he was familiar, Rabba and Rav Chista, the great Amoraim, were both amazingly righteous probably to the extent that we can't even properly appreciate from our perspective. They were so righteous that in times of drought, either one of them could daven and immediately bring rainfall. But, Rav Chista lived 92 years and married off 60 children who raised happy families and was filthy rich. Rab, on the other hand, died at the relatively young age of 40, buried his children, and was dirt poor and struggling to find a piece of bread to eat. How can it be that two equally righteous Sadiqim had such different lives? It must be, concludes Rava that one's prosperity in this world is merely a function of fate. A number of the Mepharshim chose to either ignore this Gemara entirely, or, as the Me'iri does in his commentary here, reject Rava's statement. The Me'iri even goes so far as to say that 
such a thought is religiously untenable and cannot be tolerated by any Jewish philosophy. And suggests that perhaps Rava made this cynical statement in a moment of bewilderness when he was so upset at the difficult life that Rava, that, that his mentor Rava faced. This group of Mepharshim, represented by the Me'iri, preserve the perhaps more traditional, certainly more palatable philosophical stance, which tells us that everything that befalls us in this world is somehow God's reaction to our deeds, and ultimately, good things happen to us if we do mitzvot, and bad things unfortunately happen to those who do Averot. However, the simple reading of the Gemara <coughs> would have us believe that it's merely a function of fate. The Mepharshim struggled to deal with this. The Ran suggests perhaps that we don't follow this Gemara or perhaps that the Gemara needs to be attenuated. Of course, our actions, our deeds, our merit affect our lives. That's what it says in the Torah. In Kriyachma, in Shema Tishma'u, if we listen to the Torah, we'll be rewarded in this world. And if, unfortunately, the opposite, then we'll be punished. However, it is also a function of fate. The Ran suggests that perhaps what happens to us is partially a function of our fate, and partially a function of our deeds. How would this system work? So Tosul suggests that sometimes our merits can overcome and nullify our fate, and sometimes not. The Ritva there in Moikotin further elaborates, <coughs> as does the Sefer Ikarim in great detail in the course of his lengthy and thorough discussion of this problem in the fourth book, in the thirteenth chapter of the fourth book uh, of his work, and explains that everyone is born with a certain fate. And... <coughs> For example, if one is born with a very neutral, perhaps pariv fate, then if someone does more mitzvot, they will have a better life. If someone does every rote, they will suffer. If someone is born, for some reason, with a great positive fate, then they can even get away with a little, a little of every rote. All they need to do is to be halfway decent to preserve that positive fate. And if someone is born, for some reason which we do not understand, with an exceedingly negative fate, then they need tremendous merit. They need a prodigious number of mitzvot in order to override that fate, and perhaps even a righteous lifestyle, if not uniquely and spectacularly righteous, might not be good enough. Perhaps a model we can use to understand this is, you know, those of us 
who remember previous generations can imagine some sort of slide rule. Imagine that. There's a big ruler going from zero, the worst possible life, up to 100, the best possible life. Everyone's born with a fate. Some are born at zero, one and two. Some are born smack in the middle 50. Some are way at the top. One's merits move the place you hold in that ruler up or down. So if you start at smack in the middle, your merits will make a big difference. But if you start out luckily all the way on top, then even if you go down a little, you'll still have a good life. All you have to do is not be the biggest Russia in the world. And if you start all the way on the bottom, then you need a lot of merit in order to move up even to the halfway, the 50 mark, and to have a good life might need to be the next Moshe Rabbeinu. And that is what the Ritva and the Seferi Karim suggest, that Rabbah was a tremendous tzaddik, but his fate was so poor for some inscrutable reason that even his merits were not enough to move himself up to a decent life. And Rav Chista was born with a good fate. Truth is, he could have even been born smack in the middle with a neutral fate. And with his amazing merits, he was able to earn the reward of a great life. According to this theory, the advantage of this theory is that, on the one hand, it explains why sometimes the fate that befalls someone cannot be understood. We can't make sense of it based on their merits. Because there's this inscrutable fate that we don't understand, which provides the starting point for how, what kind of life we are to receive. But on the other hand, it preserves the very, very basic Torah premise that if we do mitzvot, our lot will improve, and if we do Averot, our lives will be made more unpleasant. It just changes the Torah's promise from if you are good, you will have a good life, and if you are bad, you will have a bad life, to if you are good, you will have a better life than you would have otherwise. And if you are bad, you will have a worse life than you would have otherwise. Of course, perhaps someone's bad and has a worse life than they would have otherwise, and that's still a good life because their fate was so amazing. Or perhaps someone is good and they have a better life than they would have otherwise, like Rabbah, but it's still pretty awful because they were born with such a miserable fate. But nonetheless, it preserves the basic Torah premise, the basic premise of most religious philosophy, which is that we will be rewarded for our good deeds and punished for our misdeeds. According to this theory, we can never know when we see how someone, or even how we ourselves are treated by Hashem, we can never know exactly how much of our success or misfortune is due to our fate, and how much is due to our merit or lack thereof. But one thing we can know is that wherever we stand now, we can move up by earning more merit through the performance of mitzvot and 
are in danger of sliding down if we transgress the Torah and commit Averot. Of course, this theory still has to answer why God would assign a certain fate to each individual which has no connection or correlation with their individual merit. But, we would say this is part of the inscrutable nature of the way God runs the universe, that Hashem has all of His reasons why certain things have to work out in certain ways, and we don't understand exactly why He runs the world the way He does. So according to this fourth theory, everything that befalls us is a combination of our fate and our merit, and since our fate is fixed, we know that from now on, we can change things from what they would have been otherwise based on our merit, but we can't know when someone ends up in a certain place whether, let's say, someone has a very uneventful, a very pedestrian lifestyle, not particularly good nor bad. We don't know whether that person was born with a neutral fate and was a Benoni, um, was not particularly righteous or wicked, or perhaps was born with a very poor fate, but was exceedingly righteous, or perhaps was born with a very positive fate and lost it through his wickedness. Only God knows those calculations. A fifth, even more radical, approach is that of the Rambam at the end of the Mor Nevuchim. The Rambam, as we've mentioned a few times, in the third book of the Mor Nevuchim, chapter 17, goes through the various theories as to how God runs the world and meets out divine justice and concludes that the uh, mainstream opinion of Jewish philosophy supported by the simple reading of Tanakh and Chazal and most of the earlier Mifarshim is that everything that happens happens with justice and that any suffering befalls an individual because of sins and any rewards any positive phenomenon befall an individual as a reward for his good deeds. However, at the very end of the Mornevuchim, right, I guess for those advanced enough to make it to the very end, the Ramam lets out a secret. He says in Nun Aleph, chapter 51 of the third book, I've all of a sudden realized an amazing insight, he says, which will answer many questions and reveal many secrets, which is that we've explained, says the Rambam, in his earlier discussion of the nature of divine providence, what we call Hashgacha Pratit, that divine providence is a function of intelligence. Unintelligent animal species do not have individual providence. Human beings have individual providence God is involved in the lives of human beings because of their intelligence, and the more, not what we would call the more intelligent a person is, 
But the more a person actualizes his intelligence by learning and understanding theological truths, basically the more a person uses his intelligence to think about, understand, and connect to Hashem, the more Hashem thinks about, as it were, and connects to Him. The, uh, there's a lot to be said in trying to properly understand uh, the basis and background to this doctrine, but bottom line is, the Ramam holds very clearly that Hashkachapartit, Divine Providence, is a reaction. If we connect to Hashem, then He connects to us and is involved in our lives. The Ramam here goes so far as this. Therefore, the Ramam says, a, an accomplished, uh, so, an accomplished spiritual philosopher who meditates and thinks about Hashem all the time will be the beneficiary of constant, intense divine providence. Those who are righteous and who, for whom God is an important part of their lives but are not quite on the level of Shiviti Hashem Lenegdi Tamid of constant, uh, constantly filling their minds with knowledge of God, merit a lower level of divine providence. Those human beings who don't think about God at all, who are completely irreligious, merit no divine providence whatsoever. The Bible here adds that even among sages and prophets, Nevi'im and Hasidim, even among those who are perfect in their observance and understanding of the Torah, there are still moments when they neglect to think about Hashem. There's still moments when their minds wander or are distracted by other pursuits. And the Ramam tells us here that even the most righteous of the righteous, in a moment where he forgets to think about God and starts thinking about something else instead, loses his divine providence. The Chiddush, the new insight the Ramam shares with us here, is that divine providence is not just a function of a person's total lifestyle. If my total lifestyle is very connected to Hashem, then Hashem connects to me. And if not, not. But rather, every moment, if I am connecting to Hashem in my mind, if I am fulfilling Shiviti Hashem Lenegdi Tamid, by actively thinking about theology, then Hashem is, as it were, actively thinking about me and looking out for me in a moment where, no matter how righteous and how accomplished theologically I might be, in a moment where I am thinking about you know, my bank account, in a moment where I am thinking about the cake I'm eating for dessert, in a moment where I'm thinking about anything else, then it is impossible for Hashem to exercise, or at the very least, it is not the way which God runs the world, for Hashem to exercise divine providence 
and involve himself in my life. Therefore, the Rambam says, how can there be a tzaddik for Rallo? How can suffering befall the righteous? It says very simply, because in a moment in which this righteous person neglected to think about God, he was left bereft of divine providence. He was left to luck, to his own, uh, to his own abilities and talents. He was left on his own to navigate this cruel, cold world in which we live. And then naturally, much of the time, he might encounter misfortune and suffering. The Rambam here severely limits the role of divine providence in the world. The Rambam tells us not only that divine providence only applies to those who are righteous and think about Hashem, but it only applies in the moments in which they are thinking about Hashem. The rest of the time, the world just works mechanistically in a, we might even go so far as to say, seemingly secular fashion. The world, that's life. The world works without divine interference. Of course, this eliminates the whole problem of Russia Vatovlo and Sadik Viralo. If Hashem is not constantly involved in the world, and is only involved in those moments in which we connect ourselves to Him, then the rest of the time anything can happen. And it is not it is not a flaw in divine justice for the righteous to suffer, the wicked to prosper, because this is not a result of divine providence. It's not Hashem's involvement in the world, it's just the world Kiviyachol, as it were, running itself. This theory, even the Rambam knew to be radical. That's why he waits till the end of the morning of Buchim and only throws it in for those who've moved 34 chapters past the Rambam's explanation of the mainstream Jewish philosophical approach and made it to the very end. But apparently this represents the Rambam's own religious philosophy and the Rambam felt comfortable solving the philosophical problem of the apparent lack of justice in the world by answering that there is not always justice in the world because not everything in the world is a product of Hashem's specific involvement in this world. Sometimes that's just life. And Hashem is only involved to the extent that we specifically involve Him by connecting ourselves to Him through the practice of Shiviti Hashem Lenegdi Tamid constant awareness of the divine. These theories we have discussed uh, today are important not only for understanding why the world runs the way it runs in terms of Tzadik Viralo, Russia Vitovlo, but in understanding our basic relationship to Hashem and where we see God's involvement in the world. According to those theories which saw everything that happens to us as reward and punishment, everything good as a reward from Hashem and everything bad as a punishment from Hashem, or perhaps everything bad as a reward from Hashem because what looks bad might really be good, then everything that happens is a result of divine providence. 
they would hold that we look at the world and see every I see everything that happens in my life as a message from Hashem. I don't always know what it means, but everything that happens in my life is done directly by Hashem for some reason which is ultimately good for me and the best thing that Hashem could have done for me at that time. The Gemara in Moed Katan, as explained by Tosfot and the Ran and the Ritva there and the Sefer Ikarim, takes an in-between approach. Everything that happens in the world is a function of divine providence, but also a function of just the natural structure of the world and the inscrutable ways of fate. And therefore, I look at what happens to me as a function of of two factors, and I'm never exactly sure how much to ascribe to nature and how much to ascribe to Hashem, to Hashem's direct involvement, but I do know that Hashem's direct involvement is always a factor. The Rambam takes an even more radical approach, and while he does have a number of Jewish philosophers who agree with his approach, this is generally too radical for the vast majority of Jewish philosophers over the ages, and says that sometimes, perhaps, for regular mortals, much of the time, what happens to us is not a function of divine providence at all. It's just the natural workings of the world that only in specific, special circumstances, that is, times when we meditate on the awareness of Hashem, then that which befalls us can be seen as a result of divine providence. This is not just a theoretical question of explaining why things happened to various, and do happen to people in the world, including ourselves, but as a basic question of the nature of religious experience. Do we see everything that happens out there as a direct act of God, as a message, as Hashem's caring involvement in our lives? Do we see everything that happens out there as some combination of Hashem's involvement and the natural workings of the world? Or do we see perhaps much of what happens out there is just the natural working of the world and Hashem's involvement as sometimes more the exception than the rule? This will affect not only the nature of our experience of the world, but how we interact with the world as well. Perhaps the issue in Jewish philosophy, which is most, as they say, halacha lemaisa, makes a practical difference, a tremendous practical difference, and underlies very, very deep-rooted debates between different segments of the Torah community as to how we should lead our lives hinges upon this issue. Do we lead our lives working under the assumption that everything that happens will be from Hashem and not through the natural order? Or do we lead our lives by working through the natural order? Or perhaps some combination or compromise? That is an issue which depends on these philosophical debates 
And we will revisit, with Hashem's help, in a future shear.